1: Greetings, I'm Tricia Kuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's book is Desert Paradises, Surveying the Landscapes of Dubai's Urban Model by Julian Bulleter, published by Routledge in 2019. Hi, Julian. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tricia. So let's start with, can you tell the audience about yourself?
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm co-director of the Australian Urban Design Research Centre in Perth, which is a research centre of the University of Western Australia. Uh, And we're interested in the big issues facing cities in this century.
1: And uh, what is your academic background?
0: So my academic background is I did an undergraduate of landscape architecture last century at the University of Western Australia, graduated. I worked as a landscape architect uh, all around the world in Sydney, um, Dubai, uh, London, and Boston briefly at Martha Schwartz Partners. And then I returned back to uh, Perth and did a PhD uh, with Richard Weller, who's now from the heading up the landscape architecture practice, um, the uh, program at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and the PhD I did was on Dubai and landscape architecture in particular in Dubai, and that formed the basis of this book.
1: Well, that's my next question. So what was, what was your motivation for uh, writing this book? Why Dubai? Look, I,
0: I, um, I moved to Dubai in 2005 to practice as a landscape architect with extraordinarily little knowledge of the culture um, that I was uh, moving into and the landscape. And all the issues that go with design landscapes in that part of the world, I was completely naive of these issues. Um, practice there was such a uh, exercise in just surviving the day-to-day and delivering, you know, massive projects very quickly um, and really didn't leave a lot of time for reflection on practice. So when I left Dubai some two years later, I felt that there were a lot of unresolved issues for me and things I wanted to contemplate further and the PhD sort of seemed to provide the perfect opportunity for exploring some of the issues which um, practice hadn't allowed um, me to really think about fully.
1: Uh, what were some of the issues that you explored in your PhD? What, what are the issues of Dubai?
0: Look, the, the PhD um, was a kind of evaluative exercise, which really just set out and tried to understand what is the United Nations, what is IFLA, Telling landscape architects they should be doing in these kind of contexts, and it was really about analysing contemporary practice in Dubai in relation to that framework assessment framework we'd set up, which which related back to the International Federation of Landscape Architecture uh, and the United Nations, and really just trying to assess practice against those. Now that has its problems because that's a sort of Western normative framework. I guess it's being set up and used. To guide, the analysis, but at least it gives you some framework for critically analysing the sort of practice which has been undertaken in Dubai.
1: Can you tell me more, a little bit about, uh, of course, I I got my master's degree in landscape architecture. We studied um, Islamic landscapes. What is an uh, idealised Islamic landscape? Uh, How is it different from Western culture? Can you talk more about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a tradition of recreating paradise, which is strong in both cultures, the idea of a paradise garden, which um, typically in the the Middle East broadly um, or in Arabic Islamic urbanism tends to be a very um, where landscape or green landscape becomes a precious jewel, which is typically um, sort of inscribed within a courtyard sort of dwelling where it's protected and it becomes this recreation of paradise, of, of greenness and of flowing water. Uh, and repose, and this kind of um, paradisical landscape is is somewhat, I guess, is a theme in both cultures, but it's particularly pronounced in the Middle East, where the backdrop of it is is so arid and so much a desert.
1: Uh, so why did they? What's the history of Dubai? I don't. I'm not even sure myself. How did they choose this location? Uh, how did this all get started?
0: Yeah. So. Dubai was like um, many small centres along the Trishul Coast, as it was called, which is the, essentially the coastline of the Arabian Gulf, um, which were small um, fishing settlements, essentially, perched on the edge of the al Khali Desert, which is the empty quarter in English. Um, and they were for a long time very small and, and comparatively, you know, to the larger region, insignificant kind of centres. They, they were trading centres and they had been there for some time and um, There's evidence of, you know, Dubai or that area having been settled for thousands of years in a modest kind of way. So there is a long a long history to those centres, but they were typically small and they were essentially um, fishing and trading kind of ports uh, with some smuggling, which has been a kind of um, a long tradition in Dubai. So things were very quiet there. Um, they became protectorates of the British um, in the, I believe it was the 19th and yeah, in the 19th century, um, so they kind of signed their protection away to the British. Um, but really there wasn't a lot to report, I suppose, until the um, discovery of oil, which was typically at the sort of mid-20th century, where things um, changed quite rapidly, as you can imagine, um, with the discovery of, of sometimes vast oil reserves. Um, in the, in what became the emirate of abu dhabi and to some degree dubai enabled a you know a campaign of modernization to be unleashed uh, quite quickly so there are enormous changes in the culture which occurred in those in in the in the decades that ensued after finding oil and having that uh, resource tapped so you go from a situation where there are goats and camels you know wandering through the main street of of what it came Dubai and to the first you know concrete block house being built, the expansion of the dry docks, um, the early sheikh uh, of Dubai, a uh, sheikh Zayed and the sheikh Rashid who followed um, were vir- visionary figures who who very much seized the opportunity to modernise. Um, their, their emirate, what became the emirate uh, of Dubai. So that, this was things like building, building road infrastructure, building concrete housing, um, expanding ports and building ports, um, starting to build um, things like dry docks. So they, in Dubai they built the largest dry docks in the Middle East so ships could be built and reconditioned and repaired. And so there was, tradition, there was tremendous investment in modernisation, which saw a huge upheaval in how people lived. Um, and it went from a fairly uh, handicraft kind of economy um, to one which was then sort of geared around the production of oil Um, and then we saw enormous changes wrought to the urban form going from um, fairly organic and informal sort of settlements um, to your kind of concrete block housing which started to resemble quite quickly more suburban layouts which would be more familiar to your American and Australian listeners Um, and then Yes, I could go on and on, um, but that was no, the no. Inch- please go. Phase yeah. change. Inch-
1: so they, um, the, how fast did this happen? Because I, I never heard of Dubai, and all of a sudden it was in the news. Uh, I guess they were doing marketing. And do they still do? Just out of curiosity, uh, oil production close to the city? Is it far away from the city? How did how did they? What is their urban form? How did they do it?
0: Yeah, what are they doing? Look, the urban form is very much based on Western principles. Uh, The early plans of Dubai um, basically extrapolated the road system um, out into the desert and along the coast in all directions, um, and it assumed what would be fairly recognisable to most suburban dwellers of the Western world, which is detached concrete housing on a generous road system with fairly generous open space and green space, um, with the backdrop of the desert, of course. What really, I think, started to change, though, which was um, in the 1990s and certainly very early 2000s, was an understanding by the the rulers of Dubai, which at that point was um, uh, Sheikh Mohammed, uh, which was a realisation that while Dubai had had a lot of oil, that its economy wasn't going to be able to ride on the back of the oil forever. Uh, And certainly oil reserves were starting to be diminished. And there was a realisation that they needed to seize other ways of, of firing the economy up and keeping things ticking along. Basically, that um, saw a real um, easing up of the constraints on Westerners and outsiders being able to buy real estate in Dubai. So up until that point, there'd been fairly significant restrictions on that, but you started to see the development of free-trade zones and also zones which Westerners could buy property. There was also a um, increasing concern with actually um, having Dubai feature in the kind of you know global consciousness, and this was done in very. Um, I think I think the, the rulers of Dubai were very intelligent about the way they went around this. They basically conceded that Dubai had very little in the way of natural attractions. I mean, it had the desert, and it had the beach, and, um, and they had certainly their own charms. But it wasn't going to put um, elevate Dubai onto the global stage. So for them, it was about actually constructing attractions. So this was about things like building the palms, which some people will know, which were huge um, urban developments which extend out into the shallow and warm waters of the Arabian Gulf, which look like palms when viewed from an orbiting satellite. It was about projects like um, the Burj Dubai or became the Burj Khalifa, which is still the tallest building in the world. And it was about building projects which would capture the global attention through constructed attractions. So they did this probably more successful than any um, ruler or government has done today. They put Dubai on the map and to the point where people would say London, New York, Paris, Dubai. The fact that Dubai had been elevated to being into that sort of um, class of global city was an amazing achievement given that in the 1970s Dubai was really a few dusty streets um, and and not much else other than a... A small port, so um, an enormous achievement, which was funnily enough, um, the idea that constructed achievements could um, introduce Dubai to the world was something that I believe it to be Sheikh Zayed or Sheikh Rashid in the 1970s or 60s realized when um, Princess Elizabeth deviated a flight she was taking from Bahrain back to London to see the tallest, the then tallest building in the Middle East, the World Trade Centre, which the, um, the the Dubai government had just built on Shakeside Road, which was at that point the tallest building in Dubai. And I think there was a realisation then that you could construct attractions and the outside world would notice. So that really informed Dubai's urban development um, into, the, into the 90s and early 2000s. We then see another shift which occurs, which is, I think, um, a timely shift, which has been more or less... Probably the last ten years or so, which I think has probably emerged out of the sometimes stinging critique which is made of Dubai, which is it's all show, but it's really very vacuous and it's superficial. And sure, they built a tall building and they built these crazy mega structures in the former Palms out into the uh, Arabian Gulf. The realization that it might be more about providing enriching experience and, and diverse experiences, which tourists. Won't receive anywhere else. So there's been a real focus in the last few years by Sheikh Mohammed, the current ruler of Dubai, into constructing experience. There's a lot of place making and place branding going on. There's a lot of development of urban developments, which are um, which actually artificially try and recreate a sort of vernacular of the region. So so they actually try and recreate, to some degree, what was there prior to the petroleum. Um, kind of uh, era of Dubai. Um, so we have these sort of nostalgic um, developments which are about trying to deliver, I think, for the wealthy investor and the global tourist, and to some degree, wealthy locals, trying to deliver a kind of a built form vernacular which may or may not have ever really existed there. Um, but nonetheless, it seemed to be giving a unique experience which you won't get elsewhere in the world. So it's very much about become about actually trying to deliver experience rather than just now building the, the world's tallest building or the biggest megastructure.
1: Mega oh, well, that's one of the I would ask you about. I saw in a book you said that um, you know, Dubai is uh, an open-air canvas for art and culture. Um, as a Westerner, you know, when, I, when I travel, I like to go places and experience something different than where I was back home. Are, how are they incorporating um, and maybe even educating the tourists about their Islamic culture?
0: Yeah, look, I think it is about um, trying to rebuild these urbanisms which evoke traditional Emirati culture. and I think that works to some degree. However, it tends to be more of a retail destination, which is kind of themed uh, in a certain way, but it's still very much about um, getting people to open their wallets. Look, I mean, they have been pushing national culture quite heavily in the Arabian Gulf and in Dubai and United Emirates in particular, I think in recent, in recent years for a couple of reasons. One was um, I think there was a perception from some Emiratis, and this is probably better said by them than me, that Dubai had been too open to the outside world and too quick to modernise and had lost its sense of who it was and its unique sense of identity and its traditional culture. So there's very much in school curriculums and the like um, there's very much a strong push to reclaim national identity and heritage, which is which is coming from the highest levels in the um, UAE government. And uh, look, I think that's un- understandable for Emiratis who might feel like they've they've lost the kind of quieter and, and more authentic city of their childhoods to really what has been an unparalleled um, period of globalization. So there there is that going on. Um, in terms of how it might inform the tourists, I think Dubai has been good in terms of um, there's a particular mosque, Jumeirah Mosque, which is open to Westerners to come in and have a, a first-hand experience of Islamic culture and, 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 and prayer. Um, and certainly the um, there's a you know, host of museum projects which have, have been constructed across the UAE, which are really dedicated to being able to communicate the story of the fact that Dubai is not a recent uh, it might have emerged into the global consciousness quite recently, but it's been around for a long time. Um and some would say it's been around as long as the um earliest settlement in the fertile Crescent. So it is in some respects truly ancient. So there's been a um a desire by the UAE government to to kind of to make that claim. Um but Dubai at the same time is very um it's very successful in that it allows a very multicultural community of people to live essentially their own way of life, it hasn't demanded assimilation of Westerners or really any real expatriates to any large degree. It is what Mali Andreas refers to as island urbanism, which is it is islands of fairly discrete cultural blocks which don't tend to mix that much. So from one perspective, it's a tremendously successful multicultural society. In fact, it's some 80% you know, immigrants, foreigners, expatriates, and it's only 20% locals in Dubai. But it's generally peaceful and it generally works in a fairly harmonious kind of way. Um, A critic would say, however, that it tends to not be that much interaction between the different socio-cultural strata in Dubai, which, you know, frankly, from an Emirati perspective is quite understandable. If you've seen your um, culture overwhelmed by, you know, proportionally 80% of foreigners, I think you can understand why there might be a withdrawal from that. Um, But long story short, I mean, I think um, the Dubai government is trying to educate tourists to some degree and expatriates to some degree, but it's careful not to be too demanding in that respect as well and to allow people to really follow their own way of life uh, in, in what is essentially a foreign city.
1: Well, since we were into landscape architecture too and you talked a little bit in your book about uh, ecology, how did they, you said they had a lot of generous green spaces, but what about the ecology of the desert? Um, that's pretty interesting. How did they incorporate it or did they, what, what did they do?
0: Yeah, look, um, if you if you read Sheikh Mohammed's book, there's a sense that the desert is essentially uh, an empty place, um, which needs to be... Which needs to be transformed for development, and it needs to be it needs to be greened. And so often uh, in the Dubai municipality kind of um, planning for green space, there's a lot of comparison to what's going on in the rest of the world, and the fact that kind of pushing this idea that Dubai needs to keep up. Um, so if the rest of the world is trying to achieve ten percent, you know public open space per urban area, and then Dubai should achieve twelve percent. So the but turning the desert green is generally seen as being something to aspire to. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I get into kind of um, somewhat shaky territory here because I'm not Emirati and I can't speak with complete authority, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that the act of turning the desert green generally through urban development is is to some degree quite pragmatic, which is, well, green packaging of real estate developments certainly improves their, their saleability and their, their real estate value. But there's another angle to it which some um, scholars have pointed to, which is that the Quran refers to not just the idea of aspiring to reach paradise but also to recreating it on earth. And certainly there is that tradition in, in Arabic Islamic paradise gardening. But in Dubai you have the situation where oil has been discovered and all of a sudden there are desalination plants and there is the the Sheikh has the power, and developers have the power to turn large swathes of the desert green. Now, there is some evidence to suggest that that is, to some degree, a recreation of paradise. Now, it might not be a dominant component of why that's being done, but it's probably in the mix. And That has a lot of implications um, for a benevolent dictator like um, Sheikh Mohammed, which is, as you turn the desert green, you're confirming both that you're a very strong ruler because you can turn the desert green. This is um, no small thing in a in a, in a hyper-arid climate and context like Dubai is. So it, it both reinforces the strength of the sheikh, of this benevolent dictator, but also gives him a kind of religious imprimatur, which is he is recreating paradise. Now, for someone who's not elected and is to some degree a benevolent dictator who maintains his authority by being benevolent and performing the works of God and providing this wonderful green space, this is not an insignificant act uh, to be doing this. So the act of turning the desert green has these kind of political and you know, religious dimensions to it, and very pragmatic dimensions, like flogging real estate. Um, but in the kind of frenzy to turn the desert green, often the concerns of, of biodiversity and wildlife have kind of been trampled. Now, that in itself is quite understandable because the biodiversity in Dubai is quite thin. Uh, it is, a, you know, it's a hyper-arid kind of context. I lived there for two years and it rained once. So it's not to say there's not desert ecology. There is. And it's, it's not to be, um, it shouldn't be, un, it shouldn't be written off. Um, but it's understandable how in this frenetic application of green space it's sometimes been overlooked. But we're finding in, in more recent years, obviously, um, landscape architects are sensitive or often sensitive to local context, and there's an increasing kind of push to try and get endemic planting into projects. But it's not easy because developers are trying to market a certain image, and the image of um, of kind of weedy sort of desert plants is not necessarily the image which can be used to sell real estate developments. So it's not easy for a well-meaning landscape architect um, to deliver an endemic landscape in Dubai because it can be seen like, well, when are you going to install the real landscape? Um, The other thing is just often these plants are just not available in commercial quantities. So there's a whole industry that needs to be built up around endemic planting. So no easy feat, but um, some landscape architects like in Inca certainly um, and amongst others are pushing are pushing that sort of development
1: well I'm curious how did their urban form uh, and your research of it how did they get this is kind of an obvious question how did they get their water to support such a large city that that's a lot of infrastructure
0: yeah it is a lot of infrastructure look initially there was a lot of groundwater pumping and and the UAE generally, the United Arab Emirates, uh, which is the, the confederation of Arab states that Dubai and the Emirate of Dubai is part of, have certainly been over extracting their groundwater. Um, so there's been a lot of pumping going on. But most of it's from desalination plants, um, which are principally fossil fuel powered in Dubai's case, and running on oil, um, which, you know, produce a tremendous amount of fresh water and without that Dubai would not exist in its current form. Um, but, you know, obviously that, that does come at an ecological cost. Returning all the salt to the Arabian Gulf, according to some commentators, has, has made it even more saline than it already has and or that it already is. And that's led to some fish kills. And obviously there's, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions associated with an oil fire, you know, um, desalination plant. But that's basically enabled this kind of green sprawling pancake of urban form that comprises Dubai.
1: Uh, Well, I know we've gotten into the conversation before I asked this question, but what was your research methods for this book? Yeah. How did you approach it?
0: How I approached it was this. Um, Look, the book has a couple of different sections to it, so let me recreate it in my mind. Look, a lot of the book is interpretive. Um, So it's a lot of the book is about really trying to understand the dynamics of the kind of landscape and urban design which is being produced in Dubai, what are the the agendas behind it? Some of the agendas behind urban development in Dubai are very very transparent, which is that it is to make money, like urban development around the world, Uh, and it's about sustaining Dubai's economy, which is completely legitimate. Um, So, you know, there's an economic uh, agenda going on. There's a political agenda going on too, I think the way we've been talking about green landscapes as some kind of recreation of paradise does legitimise the rule of Sheikh Mohammed, a benevolent dictator. There's also a political dimension and a cultural dimension going on with these recreation of apparently vernacular urban forms. You have to understand as the Arab Spring swept across the Middle East, there was concern, understandably, from the benevolent kind of dictators of the Arabian Gulf that this, turmoil would engulf their own states. And I do believe that the creation of these vernacular um, historic or apparently historic urban developments is a way of positioning um, their rule within a larger, a longer lineage which extends back to the ancient kind of origins of cities like Dubai. So I think there's a political dimension to it that's going on. Um, So, look, the book was about kind of trying to unearth some of these different... Um, narratives and agendas, which otherwise might not have been transparent to a or apparent to a kind of naive practitioner like myself when I was working in Dubai, and, and more concerned with not making major mistakes on building sites rather than sort of you know unpicking what things might mean. Um, so it, the early sections are interpretive. Now they use um, a few different devices to arrive at that sort of interpretation. So you know there's a, a comprehensive literature review that was undertaken. Um, there was a series of interviews which were, were undertaken um, and also a really close reading of, of you know, Sheikh Mohammed's book to try and understand, you know, for, for, for a city in an emirate which is so much determined by the vision of one man, at least currently, um, to be able to really get into as much as I could to try and understand his perspective and where he was coming from. So the early book, sections of the book are very interpretive it then switches into a more evaluative mode where it really just looks at, you know, from the United Nations perspective um, and the Sustainable Development Goals perspective and the International Federational Landscape Architecture. Is the, are the kind of landscapes and urban designs we're delivering in Dubai, um, are they successful in, a meet, in kind of meeting those aspirations which that framework sort of sets up? Now, there's problems in that because that's a very Western framework and the book has been criticised because of that. But you have to understand that the Dubai's urban development model is, is tremendously influential across the region uh, to Asia to some degree and particularly in Africa. Um, Dubai is sort of seen as the kind of grandparent of, of new African smart cities because they took a city that really had very little, you know. It was a desert and they turned it into a city that would be mentioned alongside Paris, London and New York. And there's always a sense of it can be done in Dubai, or well, maybe it can be done in Uganda, maybe it can be done in Somalia. Um, so it's tremendously influential, hence the fact that there was a recourse to the sustainable development goals of the UN and IFLA to just go, is this practice meeting our aspirations globally? And on many fronts, it's not. And so the book discusses that. It is not, Dubai has one of the highest per capita greenhouse gas emission or ecological footprints of any city on the planet. Um, and, you know, huge sprawling green landscapes which require vast amounts of fertiliser and water and produce a city which requires a car to navigate obviously are implicated in the huge ecological footprint per capita that, that Dubai has. So, from an environmental perspective, it's problematic um it has also seen the erasure of desert you know ecology and also aquatic ecology. you know the palms which are built off Dubai saw the destruction of of huge amounts of coral which would wash up on the beach when I lived there every day um so you know there's there's a kind of there's a kind of courageousness to dubai development which which is impressive and and you know i uh, you can be swept away by that but it has to be conceded that the environmental effects of it have been significant now the other things which the um, the un and if say we should aspire to is inclusive urban forms and green space in dubai isn't that inclusive it has it's tremendously stratified in terms of um, different sociocultural groups which extend from very wealthy emirates through to wealthy expatriates, through to a kind of unskilled migrant underclass who build the city but don't really get to inhabit it. Now we see in Dubai often public spaces being fenced um, because they're viewed as being primarily for for families and particularly for Emiratis, which is understandable. And many of the kind of urban um, spaces which are which are heavily themed and stylized and and branded um, really are uh, uh, for trapping capital and that's and for producing unique but fairly indulgent experiences for for locals and tourists and wealthy tourists and expats so the city is not particularly inclusive from a societal perspective, which is another thing which the u n and the international federation, federation of landscape architects say we should aspire to and finally culturally um what really does tend to happen in Dubai is that the local built form vernacular is kind of reconstituted and themed and starts to emerge in forms, which are actually pretty different to what was there. So there's a kind of, it um, can be argued to be a trivialization of traditional Emirati culture and a trivialization of the vernacular built form into something which kind of looks a bit vernacular, a bit local but actually the kind of authentic forces that would have originally produced that urbanism have completely moved on. And the urbanisms which have been created, which are actually often quite charming, these these sort of um, fictional arabesque kind of um, urbanisms, can be quite charming and fun to visit, but they're not very authentic. Um, And they can be argued to commodify and trivialise the the actual built-form vernacular. So by, by way of summary... When you look at what the UN and IFLA say you should be doing as a design practitioner, Dubai doesn't really stack up very well on either of those three fronts. But I hope the book is complex enough to say there are quite understandable reasons why these things are happening. And it doesn't mean practitioners just don't care. Uh, it doesn't mean the sheik is evil. It doesn't mean it's all some grand conspiracy. It just means it's really difficult in that context to to deliver those aspirations. And certainly as a practitioner in Dubai, I think I failed on all fronts. And that didn't mean I didn't care. I was just generally very ignorant, I think. Um, and also your focus is elsewhere. When you're, you know, in the middle of a building boom and you're just trying trying to get things built properly, um, it really, it's very difficult to indulge those more academic dimensions of practice. And I, I hope I hope the full complexity of that situation comes through in the book. and Practitioners and practitioners who are, genuinely trying to do their best and not offended by these negative characterizations.
1: No, I could see, I mean, that is, I mean, the fact that he was able to do that and to lift, lift his culture into um, uh, prosperity. That's, that's an amazing achievement. It's a huge achievement. And, and, and and like you said, you know, I mean, I was thinking about where you're talking. It's like, you know, none of us could do, anything perfect. And, you know, obviously about, I was thinking about, I self-critique my own stuff until it's built. You can't sit back and go, well, did I do it well or not? <laughs> and, I, and I'm okay with that because to me, critique is making things better. It's not saying, it's not being negative. It's how can I make it better? Because I always like to make things better.
0: <laughs> Look, and I think Dubai is at the right point in its, you know, in its evolution where it probably could do with some targeted critique the problem with Dubai is you tend to, um, there's a kind of fashion in the Western media to bash Dubai because it's very easy. And so reporters in and then don't barely get out of the airport and slag the place off and leave again. Um, and I really don't want to perpetuate that model of critique with Dubai because I think it is actually very unfair. And I think what not just Sheikh Mohammed has achieved, but, you know, the succession of Sheikhs who run Dubai have achieved is, is staggering. I mean, they've put that place in the map. Um, the thing is all of these achievements come with trade-offs. And I think if, if the book communicates anything, it's just that there are significant trade-offs which go with that kind of courageous and sometimes reckless sort of urbanisation, which is you build a megastructure you can see from space and it looks like a giant palm and everyone sees it on Google Earth and it puts Dubai on the map that's a huge achievement. But on the other hand, you're destroying coral reefs and you're also they might be quite wealthy, but you're also embedding people and expecting them to live part of their lives in an urban form which is really not well suited to everyday existence. It's not easy to get around. It's not walkable. Uh, it's very difficult to be sustainable living when you're living on a you know, a rock and sand filled megastructure extending eight kilometres into the water, you know. Um, so there are all these trade-offs, and I hope the book is nuanced enough um, to be able to evaluate or to at least discuss these trade-offs, which are inherent in any of the planning, which has underpinned Dubai's, you know, amazing growth over the last few decades.
1: Well, that kind of reminded me, you know, um, I live in Key Largo and and, um, you know, it's not walkable. Its economy is not sustainable either, and uh, I could make a lot of the same critiques of this area. <laughs>
0: Yeah, indeed, and, and perhaps you should, you know. I mean, it's, if it's valid in Dubai, it's valid in Key Um, I. However, the thing we have to be wary of is this, there, there is this culture of Dubai bashing, and henceforth when I critique Dubai in the book, it wasn't a case of just wandering in there and just getting the knife into it. This is why I think it's important to be using a framework such as set up by the UN or if less so that you have some kind of verifiable kind of framework by which you're making the um, critique. It's not just happening on an intuitive or or impulsive or ideological basis, you know, Um, because I think that is damaging and and that doesn't really achieve anything and that's going to alienate a lot of people and and probably quite rightly.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it's still, um, yeah, an accomplishment and and how uh, there's the discovery of oil just Completely transformed everything they had overnight. That must have been kind of jarring culturally.
0: Yeah, it's a huge shift. Um, and I, you know, I think again, it's a story of trade offs, isn't it? I mean, with that, um, Emiratis sort of emerge onto the global stage, uh, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, I think, uh, you know, you know, the reputation and the prestige and the wealth and the luxury that goes with that. Um, must have been intoxicating and you know and the green space and this verdant kind of city which formed for a culture which had been essentially living in the desert for millennia you know this huge expanse in green space this kind of green paradise that formed it would have been intoxicating particularly for the bedouin who you know were living in the desert where greenery was about life and death uh, where such their sensitivity to rainfall would be that they would remember that in that part of the desert, it had rained one year earlier or one year later than other parts and henceforth would be just that slight bit more green. And that would mean that the camels would be able to survive and they would be able to survive. So for a culture that's been living with that kind of relative deprivation, to suddenly had this huge influx of oil-generated revenue by which you start to transform, you know, what becomes a city into this kind of green paradise, would have been absolutely intoxicating. So you have that on one hand, but then this, this, you know, what must have been this this jarring kind of um, dislocation from traditional life being thrust into the kind of global spotlight, even though probably a lot of Emiratis didn't really see that. Um, having your city com- kind of completely subsumed by outsiders and foreigners um, must have been pretty difficult as well. And I'm sure there's Emiratis who, at the end of it all, really would ask, why is this being done in our name? Did we really ever want this? Um, and I think, I think as people, and particularly Emiratis, have asked that question, the Sheikh is sensitive to that. And, and I think the kind of push to reinforce national culture through the curriculum, through the construction of museums and galleries, um, through the construction of apparently vernacular urbanisms, I think it's his way of recognising that there has been a tremendous trade-off for Emirati people. Um, and, you know, I for one don't envy them, but it's not for me to, um, to really say, you know, it's their country and, and they will make the trade-offs they make.
1: So what's the biggest lesson that you learned um, in all this research? I'll give you a minute. I'll throw your curveball.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I just think that it's these, and I hope the book is nuanced enough to make this point well. These things are incredibly complicated. Um, like I, I spent, between doing the PhD and finishing the book was 10 years And Dubai still remains somewhat enigmatic to me, which is it's kind of like um, Dubai can be viewed from any number of different lenses or angles. And it can be argued to be an abomination and it can be argued to be a wonderful achievement. So after 10 years of studying this city, it still scrambles my brain a bit. So I think the overwhelming um, takeaway for me is it's bloody complicated. Um, And that it takes a long time to be really able to unpick all the agendas and the narratives that urbanism and landscape, urban and landscape design in that part of the world embody. Um, And so we should be very cautious before we crash in there, thinking we know it all, frankly, like I did. Um, And that it kind of, you know, the condescending attitude I had to that part of the world and the kind of rapid, you know, the rapidly forming belief I had that it was just a sandpit that could passively absorb my own kind of works of art, um, it's really naive. And I think the book has been, the PhD for me has been somewhat of a humbling experience in the sense that I still don't really know. It's still quite complex. And my take on on the work I did and the work others do shifts quite dramatically from day to day and week and month to month. So it's a complex place. It's a hall of mirrors and we should not... Um, we should not stumble into those landscapes lightly and we should certainly do it with a lot of humility, um, which I think a lot of practitioners do, frankly. Perhaps I'm not typical of them. And I think, I think our, the culture of design is improving. I think um, the culture of being aware that Emirati culture um, has something that the Westerners might not have too and something that, that, that is worth spending the time to learn from is also something which is, 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 I think more widespread than when I worked there in two thousand and five. So I think things are emerging and improving. But by summary to your, in summary to your very, you know, difficult question, it's really complicated. And uh, I hope the book um, just opens a little door to some of that complexity, and 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 helps, and helps to kind of shed some light. It's certainly not the Bible, though, and. Uh, and I think there's room for contention of points made, and I'm certainly open to that and not offended by that.
1: Well, I, I was also thinking um, a little bit earlier too about, um, it, I, I've always loved geometry, and to me the Islamic artwork, uh, the geometry and how they put it all together, it's just um, it's stunning. Mm. Mm. And I think it's just such a, uh, and that's such a beautiful culture in and that type of art, et cetera. And uh, uh, are they, uh, I'll go back a little bit. Are they incorporating any of their art maybe back into it? Are they starting to think that maybe they're building, it sounds like they're starting to build their culture back into this form.
0: Yeah, they are. And look, this sort of arabesque geometries are, um, crop up all over the place in Dubai now. Um, Projects tend to either, particularly urban projects, where you kind of see that stuff, they tend to either be very, um, retro and and they do try and evoke that vernacular and often that's done through these kind of arabesque geometries and that's fine on the other hand you you do get urban spaces which just aspire to being completely global uh, and to be cool and minimalist and to be very much um sleek and uh of a global aesthetic so you find both you find both but certainly the kind of geometries you're talking about. are cropping up all over the place. As you'd expect, they're beautiful things and they provide a springboard for a designer to kind of um, to produce something that does feel to some degree like it belongs. But you quickly get subsumed in quite complex issues, um, which is you're a Westerner um, sort of taking these geometries without a lot of understanding of perhaps what they might signify or indeed how they historically how they evolved and it's starting to be uh, recreated as a pastiche, but maybe I'm just being an academic and overcomplicating things, which shouldn't be overcomplicated. They're a nice pattern, and you do see them all over the place.
1: Well, I guess I guess the end. It's uh, it sounds like that urban form is just it's just complicated.
0: <laughs> it's complicated. I should have called the book "It's Complicated," but no, I don't know. If it would have sold. people aren't often that into complexity. The world tends to be full of it already. I think.
1: Uh, well, this is no. It's been a really insight, and uh, and their uh, relationship to water, and uh, you know, their their point of view and their aspirations. It's uh, it's a it's a great book, uh, and I know we've uh, taken up a lot of your time today. And it's late there in Australia. Um, can you tell our audience uh, what fun projects are you working on now?
0: Yeah, it's been a bit of a shift of years um, since the Dubai book. So I'm, there's plenty of problems in Australia. So I'm turning my uh, my focus back to Australia, where I live, um, and actually working at a whole different scale. Um, we're working on um, Australia has got a population projection which is credible that it will double in population by mid-century and triple by the end of the century. And um, there's a kind of a push in Australia to develop a national settlement plan, um, which brings together this fragmented mess of different scales of planning which Australia has and and binds it together with one overarching plan that would rule them all. Um, And so that is something we're working on at the moment in terms of doing community surveys to try and understand how would Australians like to see Australia grow? Is it about big cities in the north, new cities in the south? Is it about renovating, expanding existing cities? Is it about decentralising into smaller cities in the regions? We've never had any comprehensive kind of um, surveying of the Australian people for them to tell us how this city, sh- how this country should urbanise in the 21st century. So I'm really excited about that. That's that's what we're working on at the moment. Um, it's highly visual work and it's engaging work and um, it's of a scale that gets you out of bed in the morning. So I'm enjoying that immensely and missing Missing my mental trips to the Middle East, but realizing that it was probably also time to move on.
1: Oh, but that sounds fascinating. You'll have to uh, keep us up to date on your next book, maybe about Australia.
0: For sure. I'd, I'd love to, and I'll, I will keep you in the loop.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here today. And again, this book is Desert Paradises, Surveying the Landscapes of Dubai's Urban Model, published by Routledge in 2019 by Julian bulliter. Did I say that right?
0: <laughs> no, bulliter. I, I it's okay. <laughs> I'll
1: get it right. And again, this has been Trisha Kepfer, your host on New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel in New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you so much.